We're going to be studying Psalm 28 together today. And we'll read in one of the early verses a plea from the psalmist, who happens again to be King David, a plea to God that he would not drag us away with the wicked. What does it mean to be dragged away with the wicked? Should we pray that sort of prayer? Well, that's what we're going to be studying this morning. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word from Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of His hands. He will tear them down and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank Him. The Lord is their strength, and He is a saving defense to His anointed. Save your people, and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we study Your Word now, that You would reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. Open our hearts that we might receive Your truth. Feed us that we may be nourished. That even as Jesus was nourished to do the work of His Father, Father, that we would be nourished doing Your work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do not drag me away with the wicked. If you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. The steady state, the, the natural state of things, what happens automatically, is that we go down unless God speaks up, right? We go down unless God speaks up. Now, I was not trying to be clever when I wrote that, but I think it's memorable. I think you should be able to remember that. We go down unless God speaks up, right? And, and what is the speaking up that God 
has to do. He has to not remain silent. He has to not refuse to hear us. But he has to speak up to save us. He has to take action or we will fall into the pit. That's the starting point of this psalm. Now, we can often forget that that is the starting point. We can often forget that that is the true reality of the world and what we face on a daily basis. That without the Lord, there is no hope for us. Now, none of you have any objection when I put it that way, I hope. Without the Lord, there is no hope for us, right? And yet, an awful lot of the time, we think that there's hope for us if only certain things happen. And, and that, those certain things are not that God would speak up, right? It could be any number of things. And it all depends on what's happening today, right? It all depends on how you're feeling right now. What do I feel like I need right now, right at this instant? That's what I can't do without. And, and when we turn to thinking about the things of this world in that way, as though they are going to satisfy, as though they are going to protect, as though they are what we need to be rescued, to keep us from going down to the pit, okay? If it is anything besides that the Lord speaks up on our behalf, then we know that we are beginning to make an idol out of the things of this world. That's how simple it is for us to make idols. It is uh, probably to some of us in this room laughable that people can uh, put so much time, energy, emotion, be so caught up with and self-identified with what they purchase. Right? Some of you are going to think that's laughable. And yet probably some of you in here know the feeling of going shopping as a replacement for going to God. You understand what I'm saying? Going to something else as your hope. Going to something else as the thing that will give you relief. Now, relief from what? Ultimately, the psalmist cuts through a whole bunch of layers and says, describes it as going down to the pit. Going down to the pit. Now, we do get a feel for that. We get a small taste of that every time we make an idol. Every time we seek to feed on something besides the goodness of God. Every time we seek our satisfaction in other things. When do we, when do we get that taste? It's at the end, right? When we've spent all of our money, 
We've made it to the end of the shopping spree. The credit card is maxed out. There's no way to keep buying things. And how do you feel? You feel like you've fallen about eight feet down into the pit, right? You're buried under, you're buried under debt, potentially. But even if you're not, you're buried under, you're feeling the, the emptiness of what you have grasped onto. It may be the next day after you've opened everything, right? And, and, it, and it turns to ashes in your hands, and you realize, you know, this too will wear out and also be out of fashion next week, right? Now, I'm sticking with one, one example to hopefully drive one example home rather than, rather than touching, as I often do, on many examples very shallowly. But I hope that you can apply this if, if you're the kind of person that laughs at those who shop as their, uh, as their point of, uh, escape from this world, as, as their, as their idolatry, okay? Ask yourself what your temptation is. Ask yourself what you are inclined to put your hope in. Ask yourself when you feel having thrown yourself into something that does not satisfy, when you feel like you have found the edge of the pit and it is not satisfying and that pit is in your stomach and you realize that you've thrown yourself headlong into sin. And what does... David say, David calls out to the Lord, do not be deaf to me. Now, these days there's a lot of talk about being muffled, maybe because a lot of people are muffled, right? Trying to talk through masks is not fun. Trying to talk through six feet of dirt is worse, right? Of course, the pit is not just six feet. The pit that David is speaking of is the pit of hell. Do not be deaf to me, or I will become as those who have gone down to the pit. You you understand? That feeling that you get, that is not hell. Jordan Peterson will tell you that is hell. Okay? There are other Christian men, pastors, who will tell you that what you experience here on earth, the choosing of those things rather than God, that that is hell. That is not hell. That is a gift of God to warn you what hell will be like in the end. And if God does not reach out, if God is deaf to our pleas, to our cries, if He is silent when we call to Him, if He does not answer and say, here I am, I am rescuing you, then we will become as those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Now this is, 
This is the response when you find yourself in that little pit. It's right at that time when you're, when you're in that little pit, you know you've given yourself to sin. It, it has not satisfied. It has left you miserable. And you feel most unworthy of God's loving kindness. That is precisely the time when Satan will say, he's not going to hear you. He's not going to listen to you. He's not going to answer you. Why should he? Look what you just did. Satan is the accuser. The accuser of the brethren. The brethren. Doesn't it, doesn't it give you joy to know that he's the accuser of the brethren? The brethren. What does that mean? Not the accuser of the damned. Not the accuser of those who are in the pit for all eternity. The accuser of the brethren. And so David cries out. He knows what will become of him if he does not cry out. He knows what will become of him if God does not answer. The steady state is we go down unless God speaks us up. Don't drag me away with the wicked. Now, there's always, there's always this... Uh, this aspect of the Psalms that you see other places in Scripture as well, um, where we are called both holy and sinners, right? We are called both holy and sinners. And that can get confusing to us. Here David in this psalm begins to describe wicked people as though they are different from himself. He describes them as other. There's a distinction that he makes. And yet the whole beginning of this psalm really seems to assume that what is going to happen is deserved by the psalmist, right? He's not going to say, well, I'm going to go down to the pit. I will become as those who go down to the pit. Um, he's, not going to, he's not going to fear being dragged away with the wicked unless there is some reason to think that that could happen. Right? Now, there's multiple reasons to think that that could happen. But the most obvious one that we can't ever let go of when we're reading the Psalms is that we ourselves are sinners that David himself is a sinner. Don't ever avoid seeing that in the Psalms, even when he then goes on to describe the wicked as other. We'll, we'll get to that part in a second. For now, let's start with the fact that when he cries out and says, don't drag me away with the wicked, the implication is that he is wicked too. In other words, it's, though I am wicked too. 
I've turned to you and they haven't. Don't drag me away with them. Don't refuse to make a distinction between us. Now, the distinction that he makes, okay, is where we go next. Because, like I said, you know, you've got this both I am wicked and then I am not one of the wicked, right? You got that all the time in the Psalms. Both I am wicked and I am not one of the wicked. And so, here, when he says, he's, he's saying, you know, don't refuse to make a distinction. Why should God make a distinction? What is the difference? Here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is that God is the one who made distinctions in the first place. You go all the way back to the beginning of creation, and what you see is God making distinctions. Distinctions between the water and the land, between light and darkness, between birds and fish, between plants and animals, between men and women, right? You see those distinctions, and immediately after that, what you see is God making the distinction between the sons of man and the sons of God. And you move forward in the Bible, and you see God making a distinction between the children of Abraham and the children of the world. He calls a people, he sets them apart, he distinguishes them. He makes that distinction. He's the one who creates it in the first place. If we are the ones who have to create the distinctions, okay, it's going to be hopeless. How are you going to decide who should be a man and who should be a woman? Right? We're facing that in our nation right now. How are you going to make that decision? Well, thankfully, God has made these decisions. He has made these distinctions. He has divided the light from the darkness. And that's what we get in this psalm. We get this distinction driven down in, and that's what David casts his hope on, the fact that God is the one who makes that distinction. God is the one who has set apart people for himself. Otherwise, our hope ultimately is in our own ability. Our own ability to desire God, our own ability to please him, our own ability to distinguish ourselves from the world. Now, we ought to be distinguished from the world, right? Our behavior ought to set us apart. We see all through the ethical commands in the New Testament that it is that the order of operations is God has acted, therefore, you must be holy. Therefore, and holy means set apart, distinct, distinguished from the unholy, the common, the profane. So though we are wicked because God has set apart a people for himself. 
because he has made a distinction. We can call out and say, don't drag me away with the wicked. Yes, I know I am wicked, but you have made a distinction. You have declared me holy. Don't drag me away with the wicked. That's the prayer that we can cry out to God. We are casting ourselves on his promises when we speak up with the psalmist in this way. Don't drag me away with the wicked. Does not deny the fact that we are sinners. It does not reject the fact that what we deserve is to go down to the pit. What it does is it, by faith, claims the distinctions that God has already promised and made on our behalf. So why should we be worried that we will be dragged away with the wicked? Well, the first reason is because Satan is telling you, you're going to be dragged away with the wicked. He's an accuser of the brethren. Do not believe his lies. Call out to God and he will answer you. But the second reason to be worried about being dragged away with the wicked is that we are living among the wicked. And we know what is going to happen to them. And we know that it's not going to be pretty when God pours out his wrath on the wicked, right? Now, setting aside the uh, poor theology and, uh, and terrible eschatology of the Left Behind series, how many of you are willing to admit that you have read any of that or seen any of those movies? we got more in here than I expected. Okay, a few more. Why do I bring that up? Well, because one of the things that one of the things that uh, is really quite incredible about those books is demonstrating the the wrath of God being poured out on the wicked in a it, it, what would you say you know a a play? It's a book, right? But it, it, it's it's imagining what it could look like for God to pour his wrath out on the wicked, and for there to be some there who are not of the wicked. You've got this mixture of people. We see that mixture described in the New Testament with the parable of the sower. Well, one of the parables of the sower. They call that something different. Where there... He's planted a field of good seed, and his servants come to him and say, what? There's weeds. There's weeds coming up in the field too. Should we go and tear them up? And he says, no, leave them all mixed together. When the time is right, we will distinguish between them. We will separate them. The one will be burned. The other will enter into eternal life. Well, here, David is looking around and he's seeing wicked men. Men who are, what does he describe them as? Those who are working iniquity. 
iniquity. Those who are speaking peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. When you look around the United States today, do you see people who are workers of iniquity? Do you see false promises of peace? Do you see those who smile with their mouth, but it doesn't reach their eyes? You you know that we have people speaking of mercy while they are committing abortions. This is our nation. Describing it as a good on behalf of love, on behalf of peace, let us do this evil. When we see that, when we look around, how can we know God's character without fearing being by those people, being among those people, being in that mixture? It's not a joke and it shouldn't be a joke to us uh, to stand back from somebody when they say something blasphemous, right? You know what I'm talking about. As though thunder may come, as though lightning may strike them down from the heavens. And, And we joke about that by moving ourselves away from them. But it's not a joke. It's precisely what David is praying about here. Don't let me receive their condemnation with them. Don't let me be dragged away with them. I don't want to be struck down with them. You remember when the earth swallowed up. Swallowed up. Men, for their sin. For being workers of iniquity, for being the wicked that David is speaking of here, right? You you remember reading that story, don't you? You remember Korah's rebellion? You remember how God struck them? What does God say? Separate yourselves from them. It gets to that point, and he says, now divide, and the judgment will come. And one group will live, and one group will die. Now, our temptation is always to separate ourselves in the worldly sense. Paul tells us that, of course, this is impossible, right? You have to go out of the world. This is why we're given the the parable of the the field, right? So that we can see, okay, ultimately God will do the separating. But in the meantime, we pray, 
with the psalmist that we would not be dragged away with the wicked. And that we should fear. We should fear God. We should fear the consequences of their sins and what the consequences of their sins will be for us. If the judgment of the Lord is coming on this nation, and is there any reason that it should not? If the judgment of the Lord is coming on this nation, we should be in prayer that we will not be dragged away. Right? Now, I think that this is probably the most applicable part of this psalm for us right now. Because on the one hand, we are seeing a very, very small taste of what the judgment of God can accomplish on this nation. Tiny, tiny, infinitesimal taste. It, it barely registers as judgment. And I say that in every sense of the word. It barely registers on the health front, and it barely registers on the economic front. Because when you're talking about the wealth that this nation has, and you talk about a one-third drop in the GDP or something like that, I don't mean to say that nobody dies or that nobody suffers economically. I just mean to say we're still the richest nation the world has ever seen. It's barely touched us, and yet it is causing us all to freak out, right? And so, what are we going to do? We're going to pray, like David, do not drag me away with the wicked. I know that the the world deserves much worse than this. Do not drag me away when your judgment comes, when your actual judgment comes. We will need to be rescued like Lot, won't we? Don't we love to look down on Lot for living among the, in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah? And yet if God pours out his wrath, we will need to be rescued. Now, right here, we, right, right after we've gotten done seeing, and you can look around, and it's, I, I don't only mean to say that coronavirus is the place where you're, where, where you're able to see God's judgment. I think that many of us in here see God's judgment in many other places, including him giving us over to abortion and to sodomy, and to many other sorts of uh, idolatries that are gaining ground in the public consciousness, right? And so you see the great, greater and greater drift apart of there's two worlds in this, in this nation. There, there, there's 
there's two kinds of people, and, and it's becoming more and more clear that they're incompatible with one another. And it look, you look to the future, and it's like, there's a war going on. There's a fight that, it, that makes you know, the, the, the moral majority in the fight of the 80s look tame. And so then we get this little taste, this, this tiny little taste, this tiny little reminder that God is the one who's in charge. And if he decides to judge our nation, that there will be no ability on our part to simply uh, take action and stop it. Why didn't somebody just take action and stop the coronavirus? got all kinds of people talking about who failed and how and what they could have done and how it would have been better. You think God is that easy to mock? We can just decide we're going to stop him? We're just going to stop his judgment? So when you look, when you see, when you're tempted to fear, when you, whether it's Fearing economically, whether it's fearing health-wise or whether it's looking at the, the social upheaval that you see coming, okay? Whatever thing it is that you look to the future and you're tempted to be afraid, it's right there that you cry out to God, do not drag me away with the wicked. Who are the wicked? Well, we're, we're given the picture of them, not just their acts, which we've already talked a little bit about, but we're given the big picture about them. They don't regard God's works or recognize that God's hand is working. Let me read that, verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hands, he will tear them down and not build them up. Now let me ask you, if coronavirus is the work of the Lord, if it is a deed from his hand, have we regarded it as such? Have we regarded it as from his hand. If we have not, the verse continues, he will tear them down and not build them up. That is the distinction between, the big picture distinction between the wicked and the psalmist. The psalmist acknowledges that it is God's hand that made the distinction. The psalmist acknowledges that it is God's hand that is sending the judgment and that it is God's hand that will do the rescuing. The psalmist acknowledges that it is the Lord doing these deeds. The wicked refuse to acknowledge that it is the Lord at work. And therefore, he knows what's coming to them. They will be torn down rather than than built up. Now, you cry out to God when you see the future coming and you know what's coming, right? Somebody speaks blasphemously and you step away from them because you know God's judgment will come on them. 
In other words, we can read the weather, right? We can read the weather. You look at the weather, you see what's coming, you know God's judgment is at hand unless there is repentance. You cry out to him, do not drag me away with the wicked. And then he will rescue. He will rescue. And that's what verses 6 through 9 are all about. He will hear. He has heard the voice of my supplication, verse 6. Verse 7, he is my shield, my strength. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song, I shall thank him. And we're going to do that in a minute. (laughs) We're going to respond by singing. We're going to respond with song, with our hearts exulting in this truth, that he will save his people. We're going to respond by rejoicing in the Lord's strength knowing that not only is he able to pour out a judgment that is unfathomable to us, but that he is able to rescue his people. That he will be a saving defense to his anointed. psalmist ends with this cry, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. Do not allow fear of the future to overwhelm you. Do not allow yourself to become one of the wicked who refuses to open your eyes and see the wicked. See the coming judgment of God. See his hand at work in preparing the land for judgment. Do not be one of those who closes your eyes, but certainly do not be one of those who then has no hope in the Lord for salvation. He will carry you. He will carry you. The rivers of sorrow will not overflow as we sang earlier. He will bless his inheritance. What is his inheritance? The people he has set apart. The people he has distinguished. He will be your saving defense. If there's... If there's one good thing that comes from sports, it's that we know what a saving defense looks like, right? I'm not going to say that's the only thing, but there's, there's not many. But that's a good one, right? That clutch save in the last moments, and you think, or the game would be lost? No, or God's wrath would overwhelm. He will save. Let us pray.